Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet this morning, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, One thing that I forgot to tell Suzanne to mention is that along with the annual meeting that's coming up in two weeks, that was probably a typo on my part, uh, we have these annual reports. These are available now out there at the connections table. So if you didn't get a chance to grab one of these, uh, go ahead and grab one of those here this morning sometime. As we come to look at this passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me in beginning with a word of prayer. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. Lord, this morning we gather and we extol your name. We worship you for who you are, for what you've done. And God, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would enable us to taste and see your goodness in new and in fresh ways here this morning. We believe that you, in the power of your spirit, are able to cause our hearts to become more and more aware of and more and more filled with joy in the person of Jesus. And so we ask that you would help him to be clear this morning, and that you would help us to leave here today worshiping him as our suffering servant. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have defining moments in our lives. These moments are something that stick in our memory and something that our lives are simply never the same after. Some of those defining moments might be things like marriage, might be things like the birth of a child, it might be a new step in your career path, or it might be a promotion that you've been working really, really hard to attain and you finally have reached this sort of new level in your vocational uh, pathway. It might be something like making a decision about what college you're going to go to. That's a big sort of defining moment in life. It might be something like retirement. It might be something like the purchase of your first home. There's all sorts of defining moments like this in life. And some of those are very, very good. And some of those defining moments, as we know, are also kind of painful and kind of difficult. So some of those defining moments might also be things like a divorce, maybe of, uh, between you and your spouse, maybe between uh, in your children or in your parents. It might be the death of a family member or a loved one. Might be some sort of tragedy or accident. Maybe you get let go from what you consider to be your dream job, and it sort of is a blind side to you, and you're left sort of reeling from that. Maybe there's an unexpected medical diagnosis that you encounter. Maybe you have to sell your home and move into assisted living, or maybe help your parents sell their home and move into assisted living. There's all sorts of moments like this that are defining moments in our lives, after which our lives are simply never the same again. And once those things happen, there is no going back. 
We've been in a sermon series where we have been looking at the book of Mark, and today we are coming across one of the defining moments of Jesus's ministry. As we've been saying, the book of Mark falls pretty neatly into two halves, chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 8, second part of chapter 8 through chapter 16. And throughout the book of Mark, we've been seeing that Jesus, to this point, has uh, at least not explicitly communicated to his disciples that he's going to suffer that he's going to be executed, that he's going to die. But for the first time in this passage that we come to today, that functions sort of like a hinge in the book of Mark, what we see is that Jesus, for the first time, makes his suffering and his death explicit to his disciples. And this is a huge defining moment, not only in Jesus's ministry and the trajectory of his ministry, but it's also a defining moment in his relationship with his disciples as well. And once Jesus begins down this pathway of suffering, there is no going back. This morning, what I want to do is focus our attention on what Jesus says about his death and the disciples' response, the verses that you heard read just a few moments ago. And as we do, I want to begin by sort of setting these verses in the larger framework of the book of Mark. So as, as we've mentioned before, there's two halves to the book of Mark. But as we've been going through the series, we've seen that there are these little like units, these little sections within the book of Mark. And it's important for us to uh, so, sort of just observe those because they help us understand what it is that we're looking at. So the section that we are coming into today runs from chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 10, verse 52. This is a clearly defined unit, and you can see it has a very clear structure to it, where the section begins with the healing of a blind man, and it ends with the healing of a blind man. And then sandwiched in the middle of it, there's these three times where Jesus predicts his coming death to his disciples. And every single time Jesus predicts his coming death, the disciples screw it up. (laughs) The disciples fail, right? So you've got the healing of a blind man, the healing of a blind man, and then three times where we have these passion predictions that are followed by the failure of the disciples. And so this is uh, where we are this morning as we see this first passion prediction and the failure of these disciples. And uh, we've been, as a church, looking to spend time in the book of Mark over the course of this series. And maybe you look at the book of Mark and it's really big and you think like, man, I just don't even know where to start. We're going to be in this section of these verses right here between now and and Easter. My encouragement to you is maybe just sort of like sit in these verses, sit in these couple chapters for just the next couple months here as we make our way towards Easter and just read them over and over again. And there's going to be more things that sort of jump out at you. There's going to be more things that you observe and notice. And so I want to just invite you to uh, join us as we uh, are in this section and read this on your own as well. So as we look at this passage, here's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. As we look at this passage, we're going to see first uh, something of the nature of Jesus's ministry, followed by the magnitude of the disciples' failure. That's where we're headed this morning. So uh, let's look first at the nature of Jesus's ministry. So the disciples have uh, been with Jesus. They have seen Jesus and have experienced his ministry for what has been probably about two years or more at this point. And so the disciples are well aware. They've experienced his ministry firsthand. But now Jesus is entering this new phase of his ministry. And he tells his disciples what it's going to be like. He says in verse 31, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So Jesus tells his disciples, this is what my ministry is going to be like. Suffering, rejection, execution, and resurrection. Jesus tells his his disciples very plainly, this is the nature of his ministry, this sort of uh, direction of his ministry here. One of the things that I find interesting about these verses that I've never really put together or have never been able to articulate maybe in this way is that Jesus doesn't say that his ministry is going to end with his death. Jesus does say that he's going to die. He says he's going to experience suffering and rejection and execution. And then he says, and on the third day, I will be raised again. So Jesus doesn't lead his disciples to believe that his execution is the end of the road for him. He says, no, I'm going to be raised again. And Jesus, we're told here, spokes very plainly about this. But even so, the disciples get stuck. They get stuck here on this whole thing about Jesus, you know, suffering and dying. And part of the reason why the disciples have such a hard time uh, wrapping their minds around this, and part of the reason why this is such a stumbling block for them, is because their conception of who the Messiah, God's deliverer, was going to be, uh, didn't fit with what Jesus has just told them. Right? They don't have a mental category for a suffering Messiah. In the first century Jewish world, the expectation was that God's Messiah, his deliverer, was going to come and crush his political enemies and was going to reestablish the nation of Israel like it was back in the good old days of King David and Solomon when the kingdom was large and expanding. That's what they are hoping for. And Jesus here, what he says Uh, What he's saying here doesn't seem to fit with their conception of who the Messiah is. I'm going to read you just very briefly a short passage from a book called The Psalms of Solomon. If you've never heard of it, uh, it's fine. It's because it's not in the Bible. (laughs) I'm going to read this passage to you, not because this is like inspired by God in the same way our Bibles are, but because this was written a few hundred years before Jesus was born, and this helps us understand what the Jewish people were thinking at the time of Jesus' ministry. So just listen to how these words here describe who and what the Messiah is going to be like. So the Psalms of Solomon says this, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance to smash the arrogant of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. So you can hear what their expectation of the Messiah was. This son of David, this Messiah, God's deliverer, was going to come and drive out all of those people from Jerusalem and from God's land. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were hoping for. And what Jesus says here about why he has come and what he's going to do uh, completely defies what their expectations are. Jesus says, I've not come to kill my political enemies. I've come to be killed by my political enemies. I've not come to drive out the Gentiles from the city of Jerusalem, I've not come to cast them out. I've come to be cast outside of Jerusalem myself and to suffer and die outside the city. 
And so Jesus is, what Jesus is teaching them about the nature of his ministry is, like, is totally outside of the realm of what they can conceive of. And we know that by their response. Notice how they respond. Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And after three days rise, he spoke plainly to this about them, about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So the disciples, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying. They just disagree with him. They know it's not like they're they're misunderstanding Jesus and like, you know, that they rebuke him out of ignorance. No, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. And that's why Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And it's at this moment that we begin to see the magnitude of the disciples' failure. Okay? So Jesus tells them, here's what my ministry is going to be like. And then we see the disciples totally blowing it here. We see in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, when Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, he did so as a representative of the disciples. Okay, Peter gets the bad rap because he's the spokesperson. He's the loud mouth in the group. But Peter is, what he's saying to Jesus in that moment of rebuke is representative of what all the rest of the disciples actually believe. And so he rebukes him. And I don't know about you, but I wish I had a transcript of that conversation. <laughs> I wish I could know what Peter said to Jesus. You know, we don't have that in the Bible. Uh, but but m- my guess is that Peter like pulls Jesus aside and looks at him and says, don't you dare talk like that. Don't you understand? And then he goes on to give Jesus a Bible lesson and goes on to tell Jesus, don't you understand that, that God's Messiah is going to come and conquer his enemies and destroy them politically? Don't you understand? And he like gives God himself a Bible lesson, right? And the irony of this is just so thick that, that Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus then, in return, rebukes Peter. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Mark uses some unique language here to help us understand the significance of Jesus' rebuke of Peter. So there's a couple different times in the book of Mark leading up to this where this language of rebuke is used, where Jesus rebuked. Uh, Does anyone, this is like a little pop quiz. Does anyone know where else in the book of Mark this language of rebuking comes up? Yes. Jesus rebukes demons. Where else? Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. So, so the effect of this is that you're reading along in the book of Mark and you're like, okay, Jesus rebukes demons and tells them to flee. And then Jesus rebuked the chaos waters that are seeking to uh, overtake the boat and are threatening to take the life of his disciples. And then you come here and Jesus rebukes his own disciples. You're like, oh, Jesus does the same thing to his disciples that he does to the demons? That's interesting. And in case we miss the significance of how, you know, how big of a deal this is that, that Peter rebuked Jesus, we're told exactly what Jesus says to Peter in this rebuke. 
He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So what's interesting is that, you know, I want to sit around and speculate about what did Peter say to Jesus? (laughs) That's, you know, that's important, but neither here nor there. What's really important for us to know and what Mark tells us is how Jesus responded to Peter. And his rebuke to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. Now, at this point, we may be tempted to think that Jesus is being like, maybe just like a tiny bit dramatic. You know, have you ever read this and been like, okay, Jesus, like, you've been with these guys for two years at this point. Like, you know how slow they are, right? You know, you, you know how long it takes them to like pick up on things. You know that they don't, you know, they just, they need all the help they can get. Jesus, would you just like have a little bit of grace maybe for these guys? And it can feel like, you know, Jesus is, uh, you know, maybe overreacting to the situation or like his calling Peter Satan is like, whoa, that's like too far, Jesus. We may be tempted to think that, but let me suggest that what Jesus does here is totally warranted. Jesus rebuking Peter and identifying Peter as calling him Satan is entirely warranted. And here's why. The reason why is because the actions of Peter and the disciples, their actions and their words can only be described using language of satanic. What Peter and the disciples do, that their thoughts and their actions can only be described as satanic. Now, not in the way that we might think. You know, it's not like they're, you know, they're not using a Ouija board. They're not, you know, participating in like witchcraft or anything that we would say is like super clearly demonic or satanic activity. All Peter does is just say, like, Jesus, like, it's not going to go down like that. And he gets rebuked as Satan. But the only way to describe what Peter and the disciples do is satanic. And it's because of this. By rebuking Jesus, the disciples are repeating what Satan did in the wilderness. Earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Mark gives us like two little sentences. <laughs> he doesn't fill in the details about like what that looked like. But we have in the book of Matthew a record of what that conversation, what that testing and temptation looked like. And among other things, one of the things that Satan does is he takes Jesus up to a very high place where he can see all of the kingdoms of the world and he says, okay, Jesus, I will give all of this to you if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus came to reclaim what had been lost, right? Jesus came to destroy the power of the evil one and to reclaim from him what had been taken, right? The Bible talks about the, the, the kingdoms of this world uh, and, and the world and its broken condition as under the authority, under the influence of Satan. Jesus came to destroy the power of Satan and to reclaim what was rightly his. And in the wilderness, the serpent says, okay, you know, Jesus, you can get what you came for without all of the suffering. You can have what you came for. Just, just, you don't have to have all the suffering to go with it. If you just bow down to me, I will give you back what really, rightly belongs to you. And so in, in the wilderness, what Satan is doing is trying to pull Jesus away from the path of suffering. Saying, you don't, ha- you don't have to go through all this suffering business. 
He's pulling Jesus away from the path of suffering, and that's exactly what the disciples are doing. The disciples are saying, Jesus, okay, come on now. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. That's not what it's going to be like. The disciples look Jesus in the face and say, like, no, 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 that's not how it's going to happen. That's not how it's supposed to happen. That's not what it should look like. And they're trying to pull Jesus to shake him, you know, to get him to come back to his senses that, like, he doesn't have to suffer. They're pulling Jesus away from the path of suffering, which is exactly what Satan did in the wilderness. But there's another layer to this. Because by rebuking Jesus, the disciples are repeating what Satan did in the garden. So you go all the way back, rewind the tape, all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you have the serpent coming to the woman in the garden after God had said, you can eat freely of anything you want. Just not this one tree. And the serpent comes to the woman and says, "Um, did God really say that you can't eat any of this food? So he begins by slightly distorting or twisting the words of God. Casting the sort of shadow of doubt. You know, did did God actually say that? Did you hear correctly? And then goes from there to directly contradicting the words of God. Eventually says, okay. I know that God said in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But you will not die when you eat of this fruit. In fact... When you eat of this, you are going to become like God. Because after all, God is holding back on you. He's not giving you everything you need. There's something else that you need to be satisfied or to be happy or fulfilled. And so because God's holding back on you, you need to claim it for yourself. And so the serpent in the garden directly contradicts the words of God. God said, you're going to die when you eat this fruit. He said, no, 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 that's not how it's going to happen. So in the garden... The serpent is directly contradicting the words of God and the disciples are doing the exact same thing. God himself is standing in front of the disciples and he's saying, suffering, rejection, execution, resurrection. And the disciples look him in the face and say, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not gonna happen like that. It can't happen like that. It shouldn't happen like that. And so the disciples like Satan in the wilderness, are trying to pull Jesus off of the path of suffering. And like Satan in the garden are trying to, uh, they're contradicting the very words of God. And so in this way, the only way to describe what the disciples are doing is to use the word satanic. They are following the pattern that has been set out by the serpent. And that's why Jesus has this scathing and strong rebuke saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God but only mere human concerns. And this is like a just massive failure, (laughs) right? This is a colossal failure of the disciples. And and maybe like, maybe the most uh, vivid or like uh, the the biggest of the failures of these three that we're going to see, this is like maybe tops, you know, this like maybe takes the cake. We've seen, of course, in the first, you know, handful of chapters of Mark, how the disciples how they fail, right? They don't understand. They don't see clearly. They're not very good at listening. They miss all the clues that Jesus is giving them as to like his identity and all this stuff. They just, they miss it. They fail. And yet this takes their failure to a whole nother level. And as we look at them, it looks like from, from a human earthly perspective, it looks like there is no hope for these people. 
<laughs> right? It's like you were with Jesus for two years, listening to him teach and seeing all that he's doing. And, and, and after all of that, you still do something this foolish? And it looks like you, you just ask the question, how is it possible they can recover from this? Is it possible they can recover from this? And from an earthly human perspective, it's not possible. It's not possible for them at, at such a colossal level of failure to come through on the other end. And the good news is that Jesus did not give up on them. Jesus didn't give up on his disciples, right? They are dull. They are slow to learn. They are, you know, thick-headed. They're all of those things, as we'll see in the weeks to come. They're self-centered. They're selfish in so many ways. They are unable to make themselves presentable before God. And the good news is that because Jesus is their suffering servant, they don't have to. Right? Jesus came to be their suffering servant to give his life in place of theirs because they are incapable of making themselves presentable before God. And if anything, the magnitude of the disciples' failure shows us just how important it is that Jesus came to be their suffering servant. And the same thing that's good news for them is also good news for us. We want to read these accounts of the disciples and be like, man, those guys are a bunch of buffoons. You know, we want to look at them and say like, how could they not get it? How could they be so slow? How could they act in such foolish ways? And we like to pretend like if we were in their situation, we would do anything different. And so often we choose not to identify with the disciples to think of ourselves as like, no, you know, we're, if we're honest, we would say, yeah, we're, we're better than them. We wouldn't make the same mistakes they make. And yet the reality is that we too are slow to learn. We too can be spiritually dull, spiritually blind. We too can do the same kinds of things they do. We too are incapable of making ourselves presentable before God. We too are capable simultaneously of the most important, like spectacular confession of true things, right? Remember when, when, when Peter is asked, who do you say I am? And, and, and he says, uh, you are the Messiah. There's like never been words that have been spoken that are more true than what Peter said. Peter is entirely capable of professing the most profound truth. And then in the very next moment, failing miserably. He's capable of professing the most profound truth and acting in satanic type ways, following the pattern that was left by Satan. We too are capable of professing the most profound truth, right? Of being able to recite doctrines and being able to, you know, affirm all these wonderful uh, biblical bedrock, build your life on it truths, and at the very same time, we're, we're simultaneously capable of confessing all of those things, and we should. And we're capable at the very same time of acting in snake-like ways. Of listening to the voice of the serpent and doing what is right in our own eyes instead of following the instruction of the Lord. We too are incapable of making ourselves presentable before God. And the good news is that because Jesus is our suffering servant, we don't have to. The good news of this passage is that Jesus 
is our suffering servant. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father in thought, in word, in deed, by what he said, as well as by what he left unsaid, and by what he did, and by what he left undone. He lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. And not only did he just like follow all the rules, because you can do that with gritted teeth. He followed all of the rules and at the same time, his heart fully delighted in God the Father. He lived that life of perfect obedience that we were supposed to live and have not lived. And then he came and he gave his life in place of ours. And he died a death like we deserve to die for our rebellion and for our idolatry and for our sin. And the good news is that through faith in Jesus, we have been united to him. And when Jesus, as he told his disciples, I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus' new life now belongs to us because we are united to him through faith. The New Testament tells us that, that we are so closely united to Christ, that our identity is so connected to his, that the, the Bible can say that we are right now seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. It is so true about us that we are united to Jesus that right now, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, even though you're sitting here. Because your identity is not based in you. Your identity is tied to what Jesus has done for you. And so we are united to Christ through faith. And Jesus' righteousness is ours. His right standing before God the Father, his perfection and identity has been credited, has been given to us, not because we're worthy of it, simply because God overflows with mercy and grace for us. And so we've been united to Christ through faith. Jesus did not come first to destroy his enemies, which would have been bad news for all of us. Because every single one of us, apart from God's regenerative work in our heart and our life, we are by nature... God's enemies, right? Our hearts are not naturally inclined to love God and obey his instruction. We are by nature God's enemies because of our rebellion and because of our sin. And so God coming to conquer his enemies is not good news for us. What's good news is that Jesus came as our suffering servant to give his life in place of ours. So that in spite of all of the failure, in spite of all the sin, in spite of all the idolatry, in spite of all of that, we have been given new life with Christ. He came to lay down his life for us. He is our suffering servant. And so this morning, I just want to invite you. Uh, the response to this is, I think, really simple. Uh, worship the suffering servant. Right? The only response that makes sense is to simply worship Jesus for coming to lay down his life for us. And we don't just worship the suffering servant. We worship our suffering servant. We don't just worship our suffering servant. We worship my suffering servant. And so over these next number of weeks, as we continue to look at these predictions of Jesus' death and look at the failure of the disciples, we're going to be sort of marinating in what it means that Jesus came to be our suffering servant. Why is it that Jesus came and he had to suffer? We're going to be thinking more about that. But for this morning, uh, the place we have to land is just worship Jesus who is your suffering servant. One of the ways that we do that is we come to the communion table. And as we come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, there is no clearer example 
There is no uh, more tangible picture for us of what Jesus came to do. He came to lay down his life and to be crucified, to be broken and have his blood shed for us. And so we get to come to the communion table and, and receive in faith. We get to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And as we do so, we get to be reminded of the truth that that blood and that body that was broken was for us, was for me. And so in spite of all of the, the ugliness and the messiness and the you know, complexities of our lives, we have the assurance that because of what Jesus has done, we have been united to Christ. And so we get to remember and celebrate that this morning. As we come to the communion table, let me just invite you to take a few moments for uh, silence, for reflection and confession, and then we will come to the communion table together.